Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that will help you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. Together, for you. Welcome to episode 16. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Today's episode, I think, will be an interesting one for a lot of you. I'm interviewing Barbara Allen Bradshaw and Carol Loffelman, the creators of the Canadian Clinicians for Therapeutic Nutrition Groups. Uh, And it was a really interesting interview to do. And I think a lot of us have seen them at a distance and watched their advocacy work from a distance. So it was nice to sit down and get the details from them. I have to apologize in advance uh, last week's episode, I actually recorded yesterday, and I mentioned how all my kids are sick. Now I also have that uh, virus, and so my voice is a bit off, and you'll hear it in the interview where it cuts out on me a couple times. But hey, it's spring break. What better way to spend spring break than uh, everybody's sick in the house? Guaranteed to happen with enough kids in the house, right? Please remember, if you are enjoying this podcast, to hit subscribe on iTunes so you get all the new episodes. And if you would take the time to go leave me a review or a rating, uh, reviews are really awesome. If you'll actually write something, I, I would really appreciate that. It helps out the podcast a lot. All right, let's get to the interview. Here's Carol and Barbara. All right, <laughs> welcome to the show, Barbara and Carol. Thanks a lot for being on. Can you introduce yourselves just so everybody can recognize your voice in the recording? Sure. Hi, I'm Carol Offelman. And um, I'm in Toronto. And this is what my voice sounds like. And I'm Barb Allen Bradshaw. And I'm in uh, Atmosphere near Vancouver. And this is my voice. Excellent. So thanks a lot for taking the time to come on. I think it's fun to have both of you on at the same time. And in the lead ups to this episode, I have talked a little bit about some of your advocacy stuff, which we will talk about, but I thought maybe a good place to start would be to just start from a personal standpoint on how did you guys start to get interested in nutrition? And maybe if you want to start, Carol? Sure. Um, Well, I got started because I had a personal interest in trying to lose baby weight. And so my baby at that point was four years old. And um, I decided to use my medical training and go to see what was the best, most effective way, uh, most evidence-based way to lose weight. And one of the major medical journals at that time had a series of review articles just on that question. And um, they covered how to eat less calories and to move your body more. And so I figured, well, I'm a busy academic clinician with a young family, but uh, I'm going to make a really good attempt at doing this. And so I followed um, mostly what I learned in the 80s and the 90s about the Canada Food Guide. I went uh, whole grain. I went low fat and um, I hired a personal trainer who came to my house twice a week. And after a year, I had put on 10 pounds. And that was pretty uh, upsetting. And people said, oh, don't worry, it's it's muscle, you're working out more. Well, I was working out more, but I was quite hungry at the same time. Uh, I went to the exercise physiology literature. They said to drink chocolate milk afterwards. That sounds like a good idea. It's written there in black and white. Sounds like a delicious idea. 
Well, it's for sure it's delicious. Can I have uh, some of that? <laughs> in hindsight, I understand that things like chocolate milk have been engineered to be delicious and, and are necessarily the most nutritious option for those of us who um, are sensitive to that kind of downstream hormonal problem that it can set up. And I basically set myself up for failure and uh, I was quite um, discouraged. And so I t was talking to one of my anesthesiologist colleagues and she said to me, well, um, you should try the paleo diet. And uh, I said to myself, knowing all the stuff I knew about the paleo diet that was going to be harmful for me, um, because before I studied anything about it, I thought I already knew. Mm -hmm. um, I said, all that saturated fat is going to be a problem. And um, she said, well, you know, she, she didn't push it. Um, and so at the same time, I started reading a registered dietitian column in one of the major newspapers. And I went to the comment section and there I met um, some low carb advocates and they were talking about why the registered dietitians messaging uh, probably wasn't going to work for many people. And I followed all of their scientific reasoning and I went back to the literature that they were quoting. And then the physiology really started to make sense. And so the physiology that makes the most sense to me and the thing that I intervened on was um, my overall glycemic load. So how much mm -hmm. sugar and carbs in total I'm putting into my body. And I sort of uh, understood the effects of a high insulin versus a low insulin state once I had read the literature. And then things clicked. And um, the more I read and the more I listened to on other podcasts or videos or whatever, um, the more it made sense to me that what I was doing just is never going to work for my body type, the way that I personally respond. And so my personal nutrition uh, did a 180 and mm -hmm. um, my body shape responded in kind you know um so i also instituted that in, in my home overall and so i've got two boys and a husband and um i of course was worried that what if this is not right what if this mm -hmm. is so out there even if it makes sense and i can see the effects and i can read the literature what if I'm missing something? And so I spent like five years every day reading, going down rabbit holes, trying to um, find the exceptionalities or the potential problems with it um, because I don't want to harm anybody. And uh, I just, the more I read, the more the sort of last 40 years of our dietary advice I started to make connections. I can I write the same 12 drugs on my patients who come with the same kind of metabolic syndromes and the body habitus and the osteoarthritis and the reflux disease and it's all connected in my you know in the in my mind now. Mm -hmm. um, and so once I saw all that connection I you know I'm looking for opportunities to start to 
apply this um, in a population and individual uh, approaches. And it's not easy to do as an anesthesiologist, but we uh, serendipitously found um, a bunch of physicians who were interested and open-minded and um, nurtured the learning. Um, and I really think those five years of me reading every day about it, um, you know, improved my level of knowledge to be able to combat those same oh sure moments when I go back to my colleague who told me about the paleo diet from the beginning, like the, the natural skepticism that physicians have. Mm -hmm. um, but we should also have a curiosity because it's quite obvious if you're writing the same 12 drugs out for everybody that something's not working. And so we're, you know, looking for the underlying root causes and where can we intervene? How can we change this path that so many of our population is on? Mm -hmm. Which is absolutely true. That's interesting because one of my questions for you guys was going to be um, that you definitely seem to have a very good understanding of the literature. Like when people ask questions, you're able to bring up articles that answer it and stuff. So that gives me some answers to how you've managed to do that as those five years of really aggressively uh, yeah. researching it. Yeah, and I would say that it, it was five years in isolation. <laughs> like we, we didn't have this connection. And um, I mean, I was active on Twitter and there you can find primary researchers and citizen scientists and people who have struggled. And I think the physicians who have the most open mind often have a personal something and improved with the, just by changing their food input. It's not necessarily always weight. Um, all of the hyperinsulinemia, which I can now connect to so many things. Um, what you display as your phenotype of problem um, might be different, but it's amazing how changing back to a whole food and, you know, avoiding the ultra processing of both carbohydrates and what I think is probably bad also the seed oils um, or the Western diet to, to sort of reject the Western diet is an act of rebellion these days, but that seems to be the common uh, denominator for people who are using food to try to sort of reawaken the evolutionary heritage of a healthy human. Mm -hmm. And so Barb, do you want to give your background as to how you came to this? Sure, sure, I'd love to. So it's interesting, Carol mentioned that in, she was doing the research for, for, uh, in isolation for five years. And what we find now when we connect with a lot of colleagues is that they felt like they've been on their own in this journey all along and, and that they felt like they've had their light bulb moment but a lot of their colleagues potentially haven't and look upon them with, you know, skepticism and whatnot. And so when they find our group of like-minded colleagues, they're, they're often so excited because they feel like, you know, they say, oh, I've been alone in this. And I finally found, you know, these, this group of people who are thinking the way I do. So, and, and I had a similar thing. I was alone in it as well. 
And so I had similar issues as Carol in between babies. So I have three kids and my youngest is now turning seven. And in between each of my pregnancies, I, you know, I'm studying in med school and I'm in residency. So I'm extremely busy as we know, and I'm trying to find time to exercise. But of course, that's uh, almost impossible when you're doing that kind of training program. So I had weight to lose as well. And, and I tried the portion control and um, eat less and move more just like Carol did. And, you know, I'd have minimal success, but then of course I would, it would just come back and I'd be Mm -hmm. back where I started and then I'd have another baby and the whole cycle would start again. And we're all pretty familiar with that scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, And interestingly, if I think back to even, I don't know if it was before kids or maybe in between my first and second child, I remember trying, you know, what would be called then fad diets, like, you know, trying the, um, I mean, and I'm a physician, right? So this is pretty (laughs) horrible to admit this, but trying like uh, the fasting with the lemon water and the cayenne pepper, like we, my husband and I did that for about, I don't know, nine hours. (laughs) <laughs> and then we went to Denny's. It it was <laughs> atrocious. We're like, nope, forget it. We can't do that. And then, um, and I had actually tried Atkins at the time, and I did it for about a month. And you know, and that was actually, in retrospect, and I know why now, but that was the only thing where I actually lost a significant amount of weight at the time. And mm. then, but it was always viewed as, okay, this is a, a quote diet I'm going to do for a period of time. I'm going to lose some weight and then I'm going to go back to my regular way of eating, which we know when I'm eating a Western refined diet, I just gain the weight right back. So, so these are the cycles I went through, but so I had actually had some experience with lower carb eating and like higher protein um, and lower carb before, but uh, I didn't really put a connection together as to why that could have had success because I wasn't really looking at the why at that time. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward to my, to my third child when I actually was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And so, so then now I have to check my blood sugars and I went to our diabetes education center and I got some advice, which was fairly typical standard advice that diabetic mothers get, which is, eat a certain amount of carbohydrates a day for every meal and two snacks and make sure that you have carbohydrates at night before bed so that your fasting sugar is not too high. And, uh, and I said, well, but so then I started doing the research and I started researching, well, okay, now that I have to want monitor my sugars, how do I eat in such a way that I don't need to add medication unnecessarily? And so I came across, um, low carb, uh, whole food. And I brought this up with the dietitians and, and I'd actually done some research about this prior as well. Um, but when I got the diagnosis, it kind of fast forwarded me to, okay, I need to deal with this now, not looking at it in the future. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I decided that I was going to manage my blood sugars and eat to my meter, which meant that I ate foods that didn't raise my blood sugar. And the only foods that didn't raise my blood sugar were foods that did not have refined carbohydrates or, and even for me, a lots of whole food carbohydrates, um, like lots of sweet potatoes, for example, or rice that, that raised my blood sugar too much. So mm-hmm. I just ate um, whole, whole non-starchy foods. And they didn't like that at the diabetes center. They said, no, that's, no you have to eat more carbs. So, well, why? And they said, well, you need this amount. And, but they could never really, 
yeah, I didn't really push them that hard because I'm not going to challenge them, right? And but they didn't really weren't able to say why exactly, like where does it come from that I need 130 grams of carbohydrates a day minimum, right? Mm-hmm. So I just nodded and smiled and I just went about my normal way of doing I just went about the way I wanted to eat and I came back with my pristine blood sugars and they were, you know, a little bit surprised. And they, they said usually we have to tell mothers to stop drinking sugary soda, not to add more carbohydrates, right? They wanted me mm-hmm. to eat more. So so I uh managed my blood sugars very well doing that. Um and then when I delivered uh, my child, I didn't have the pressure of monitoring my sugars and seeing them rise uh, disproportionately anymore. So I, as we all do, I kind of got lax and I kind of reverted back into my normal Western diet, which was the way a lot of people eat, you know, with breads and scones and pasta and, and all that kind of stuff. And because I, I didn't have that pressure of, you know, that immediate feedback. But three months after that, I realized, okay, I'm, you know, I'm at least 25 pounds overweight, if not more. Um, And this, and I'm a big, you know, I'm a slug and I feel like really horrible and I'm not fit. And so I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And so at that time, I read, uh, I watched, and and it actually may have been before that, but the timeline's getting a bit fuzzy. But at some point, probably around that time, I watched a video by um, the diet doctor, Andreas Infeldt, a physician in Sweden, who runs the Diet Doctor website. And his uh, video is called Food Revolution, and his newer one is 2016. I had watched, actually, I think a previous one. Um, And I had this amazing light bulb moment. And and I'd done a lot of reading. I'd, you know, I'd look back at Atkins way back in the past, right? I had, uh, you know, I'm a physician. I read the literature. I know you know, uh, somewhat how to critically analyze studies. Um, I know how to follow the best practice. And so yet I saw this video and my light bulb moment was that video. And all of a sudden, I just instantly knew and I could see where we had gone wrong as a society by mm-hmm. by um, telling people to just eat less and move more because we're not addressing the root cause. And we've let through a, a decades long series of events we have let our food environment become what it is which is just full of nutrient deplete um but calorie uh full poor quality refined and processed food and this is available 24 7 you know you can't walk down the the grocery aisles without seeing it you can't drive down streets without coming across fast food outlets everywhere. And this has become the normal food environment for us, which is a completely abnormal situation. So so I immediately had my light bulb moment by watching that video. And that's the point at which I realized I have to make a lifestyle change. Like I can't eat this Western food anymore um, because I'm just going to continue to get more overweight and obese and more sick. And so, and I knew that I did not want to develop type two diabetes for, you know, in the future as an adult, because as we know, the risk once you have gestational diabetes is extraordinarily high when you, um, you know, of developing type 2 diabetes. So I knew I was going down that path if I didn't change my food environment. So then it became, uh, this is the way I'm going to eat for life. And once I figured that out, that was the answer 
And I, and at that point I switched from a Western diet about three months postpartum to a paleo diet. So that's a whole food diet. Right. And I had, Mm -hmm. I mean, not strict paleo, like, you know, I had some dairy, but I, I didn't have added sugar and I didn't have refined carbohydrates. And and I, you know, over the about 18 months, I lost 22 pounds, but I went down a few sizes and I attained uh, a healthy body weight and I was, um, you know, I was increasing exercise as well. But, uh, and then I'd have, you know, sometimes some periods where I kind of go a little bit lax and I would let some carbohydrates and bad stuff creep back in. And, and, and my, I could tell, my body could tell that it was changing. And I was, and so then I, you know, it's not hard to do, but then I would get back on track. But, but that's, but that's now something I can't unsee. And this is what we say is once we see this, we can't unsee it. And so my journey was a personal health journey, as is the case for many colleagues and then the other times uh the other way that physicians often get into this is because of a significant black swan i guess they might have in one of their patients for example a patient they might have that's had long-standing chronic type 2 diabetes and on medications for 15 years all of a sudden try something that seems to reverse their diabetes or put it into remission and that's against normal guidelines and so when that happens the physician has to look at it and say okay what happened and why and does that mean that what we've been telling people is incorrect such that it's a chronic progressive disease so so those are kind of we have a mix of those in our in our um you know uh in our groups but mine was a, a personal journey and then i had some pretty significant uh, fallout from uh, some family members who had great uh, improvements in their health as a result of, of just sort of ditching the processed Western food as well. So yeah, so that's how I came into learning about this. And I can't say I spent five years dedicated examining the evidence as much as Carol did, but uh, you know, I've read a, a fair bit over the last many years about this as much as my you know time and schedule can allow. And it's just, it's, it's, it's ever increasing the knowledge that we have, right? So it's been quite exciting to see what's happened in the field, even over the last, you know, few years, where this this um, shift to focus away from processed food and Western food is just gaining a tremendous amount of momentum. And this is what really makes us very excited and hopeful that we can have some impact. We as a society, I mean, can have some mm-hmm. impact on level of chronic nutritional disease in the population. Well, that would be amazing. Um, so at what point did you guys meet? Well, in person or virtually? <laughs> well, virtually probably would be the so first one. Virtually uh, was almost three years ago. In fact, we're just about to have our three-year anniversary. Oh, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, April. I have to check the date, but it's in April. So, so we we met about just shy of three years ago virtually, and we met through a, a social media network of Canadian physicians, female physician moms, mm-hmm. and you know, clearly we're not the only mother. We aren't the only mothers and women in Canada who have issues with postpartum weight and or or gestational diabetes or other health problems. Um, there are many, many, many people struggling with this, just like the general population, right? And so we started talking about ways that we have had, our successes that we have had in, I think the, that particular thread that we were on was about weight loss. Um, and we we're sharing some of our uh, whole food experience. And there were a, a 
couple of other colleagues who had um, also had some experience with whole food lower carb for this purpose, for health improvement. And so we decided to form an offshoot group with starting with just four, four of our colleagues, uh, uh, the two of us and two other colleagues. And we formed this other group, this social media network. And that was, so that was almost three years ago and that was four people. And now that has grown over the past three years. Um, I'm just checking our numbers such that right now in that group, we have 3,689 female physicians across the country that are interested wow. in learning about whole food nutrition um, and all varieties of using whole food for disease and health. And, you know, um, some are doing it themselves and some are using it their patients and teaching their family and friends. And that, and this downstream effect has just been tremendous over the past three years. The amount of, uh, the number of Canadians that have benefited from this whole movement, I think has been, well, I couldn't count the numbers, but it's, it's extraordinary. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so that's, so then, then we didn't meet in person for, I think, till, was it two years after we started, Carol? Yeah. It was, la it was last April, wasn't it? Two years. Yeah. So, so we'd done all this work together virtually, and then we met in person finally about a year ago. And <laughs> it was, it was funny because we felt like we'd known each other for quite some time. So, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, social media um, is a tool for good and bad, and we're trying to make the most good out of it uh, mm -hmm. in order to spread this. So Barb's been using the word, um, the words whole food, mm -hmm. and because um, we started off low carb, and we still think that low carb is um, a good uh, explanation for the physiology of it. Um, and if you look at a plate of whole food, it's generally low carb because there just isn't high refined foods and or high carbs in most things that include protein. So maybe we'll get into the macros a little bit more, but we definitely started as a low carb group. But um, the uh, range of carbohydrates that people will require is um, going to be different depending on where they're starting from. And I think even in people's personal journey, um, what they need at the beginning to get out of metabolic trouble might not be the same thing that they need for maintenance mode, might not be the same thing they need for the next part of their life, say menopausally or um, as people age, science shows you need more protein. So you might have to, again, change what you need to do. Um, but I don't think there's any going to be any point along anyone's journey where the ultra processed food is going to be the answer. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> that's full stop. Our, full stop. <laughs> I think that's such a huge point, right? Like regardless of whatever other dietary approach you take, like if you're vegetarian, if you're vegan, if you're low carb, if you're keto, whatever, it's nobody needs the sugar and nobody needs the processed carbohydrates. Yeah, and exactly. nobody needs the added anything um, mm -hmm. into a whole food. I mean, the things that have sustained us for millennia can continue to do so. And to think that a food manufacturer is going to improve on something that um, we evolved with is uh, kind of crazy to me. And um, it's one of the things that I worry about when people are looking for, say, if they're choosing vegan, 
that they're looking for a substitute or, or a, something that looks like meat. Um, I don't think it's going to be the same effect on your body as eating the meat. I read an article recently about one of the substitutes and how they're getting so much better than their last version of the substitute and they're starting to approach um, the comparison to meat and you just you can't break things down like that it does I don't see that working yeah it's still a laboratory produced food right yeah mm -hmm. and, and we don't understand how the interaction of all the components of like the whole food so there's no mitochondria inside any of those lab foods right there's mm -hmm. um it's just not the same it can't be the same and people should know that it's not the same. So if you're choosing that, you should you should know that there are unknowns. Um, and from our advocacy point of view, we can't advocate that the whole population would uh, convert to a diet with unknowns, that many unknowns um, mm -hmm. down the road. So that was part of what we were trying to get across. Um, because I'm sure we're going to get to it, but we had a next phase in our um, evolution of trying to apply sure. what we've learned. I was going to say before we get there is I think it's amazing like if we just pause and think so those 3600 female physicians that are in the group like starting from four of you to think mm -hmm. of how much impact that has had like I think there's a big range in that group on how closely people follow lower carb or where they are in their particular journey yeah. but there is definitely like hundreds and hundreds of people that have changed their life and then are helping patients change their lives too and so i yeah. think yeah like that decision to make that group has had huge ripple effect it has and then we um we started getting requests from our female colleagues saying hey my male colleague wants to join what do we do and uh, that particular group we just chose to leave it as females physicians only for a variety of reasons but we uh, we had so many requests and then we started getting requests from um, we started meeting a lot of allied health providers or other health providers that health professionals that were also doing this with patients or wanting to learn such as dietitians and nurses and nurse practitioners and, and the list goes on and on so we formed another offshoot group of that where we had all um, male and female um, health providers in Canada allowed to be in that and that is our CCTN Facebook group which any health provider can come and look up and ask to join um, and that's been really great and that's up near about 1600 people right now as well um, we also started collaborating with international physicians so that's uh, that's something that is ongoing um, and then an interesting saying or, or that we have in the group is uh, this was Carol had run into Tim Noakes from South Africa at a conference mm -hmm. in Iceland, I think it was. And he told her that for every physician that adopts uh, LCHF or, you know, lower carb, higher healthy fat or whole food or however you want to call it, basically a non-Western diet, non-processed food diet, uh, that 10,000 patients are estimated to benefit from that. So we wow. have a one doc, 10,000 10, lives saying that it just remind you know, it just hits home to us that this is a lot more profound, I think, than, you know, just going online and talking to people about this and sharing funny anecdotes or sharing recipes or sharing the evidence. I mean, it, the, the downstream ripple effect to the population 
is something that's not measurable, but I think is a lot more impactful than even we probably realize. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's huge. So do you guys want to move on to the next steps? Um, how you got involved in the higher level advocacy? Um, sure, I can. Yeah, sure. So about, oh, about eight, six or eight months after we started our group and the groups had gone from, from four to maybe about a thousand people roughly, we learned that Health Canada was going to revamp the food guide. And there hasn't been a new food guide in, in Canada for, geez, I can't remember, that. I think it was 2007. It was quite some time ago. So, and, and we know that we disagreed with the then current food guide, which was the pretty standard Western country food guide that everybody else has based originally on the Dietary Goals for America, which was produced in 1977, mm-hmm. um, which was eat, you know, 40, like 50 to 65 or plus percent of your diet as carbohydrates limit your fat to 30%, limit your saturated fat to 10% of your overall calories. Um, And that has been unchanged for pretty much 50 years. So we, we felt that that has contributed to our diabetes and obesity and other nutritional disease epidemic by, uh, through a number of ways, just mainly by promoting this toxic food environment where food producers had to produce a certain amount of processed food items that matched the low fat dietary guideline. Mm -hmm. So they did that really well. And, you know, so much so, so well that we see the food environment we are today, right? Everyone's fat phobic. People don't think they should be eating fat. They think it's what causes heart disease because that's what we've told people for 50 years. And, and it is very difficult even as a medically trained person or an academic to get yourself out of that mindset of if someone tells you the sky is blue your entire life and then you learn when you're 45 that it's actually pink, you don't believe it because you can clearly see the sky is blue, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that, that is something that we run into that, that it's very difficult to change that uh, despite reading new evidence. But um, we uh, felt like we had read the updated evidence. We felt like we understood why that food environment um, was created. Um, and we felt that that was probably related to those incorrect, unsubstantiated dietary guidelines. So we were very excited to hear that they were going to change the food guide because we thought, man, we have a chance to do this right, finally. We can tell Canadians, you know, we can reverse this bad, you know, bad advice that we've been giving. Um, not, not intentional bad advice, but, you know, that was what we thought was correct back then. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, so, you know, it's not like governments across the world when it went around maliciously and said, yeah, we're going to make everyone sick. Let's tell them to eat low fat. Well, that's what we thought was the best, um, the best thing to do for patients, right? Um, and unfortunately, it takes us decades to find out that that was a big experiment that failed. Anyway, so, so they were going to revamp the food guide, and we were getting pretty passionate by this time. And we thought that, okay, well, let's try and harness the power of our group and let's write a letter to Health Canada and let's get some colleagues to sign it. So we did that. We wrote a letter and we had modeled it on some guidelines that we thought were much better for uh, the population, such as what Brazil did, where they essentially said, just, just don't eat processed food. Just eat real whole food that you can grow or that walks in the ground. 
try to limit the amount of processed food you eat, limit your added sugar, and cook with family and friends and learn cooking techniques and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so we thought, well, that's great. That's exactly what we need to tell Canadians because it's that simple. We don't need to, you know, necessarily say, eat this percentage of this and eat this percentage of this and avoid this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so we wrote our letter and we got some initial colleagues to sign it. Um, and so that was the very start of it. And then it just sort of grew from there. Uh, where we ended up getting more colleagues to sign on because uh, it's it's social media. Even though the group is great, it's hard to it's hard to get people to see the letter. It's hard to get people to agree to put their name to it because not everybody feels that comfortable doing that. Um, so we ended up uh, sending in another version of the letter about in like the next spring. I think this was in the fall of 2017 or 2016, and then we sent in another version of the letter, just a little bit updated. And then we got a response from Health Canada and. Basically, anything we've had from Health Canada, for the most part, has been a, a, a sort of canned stock response, saying that they're, they've looked at all the best evidence and they're doing, you know, these are all substantiated um, ideas that they have. And um, I'm missing the timeline. And at one point, we, the, oh, I know what had happened. After we put in our letter, they put in, they put out a proposed guide. So they said, look, these are the principles, the guiding principles that we were planning on, focusing on. And we still saw very similar um, ideas as the last food guide where they thought that we should be limiting saturated fat still. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, you know, and putting warning labels on food items with high saturated fat and high salt and high sugar. So we sent in a rebuttal letter to them, and we uh, included a bunch of, you know, evidence that uh, about saturated fat and whatnot. And so we just we had these back and forth um, uh, communications with them, and we we didn't hear much from Health Canada. Most of our most of our um, letters just you know were unanswered. Um, but when we did get anything back, it was the don't worry, we're looking at the best evidence and um, we've got this, right? So they didn't really seem to to want to either want or be able to listen to much of what we were saying. Um, and eventually we were we made a fair bit of noise so that we were <laughs> invited to go meet with them in uh, last spring. So we did take uh, we took a few colleagues out with us and we met with Health Canada in Ottawa in uh, May of last year, which was uh, a very positive meeting. It was, it went very well. We spent over two hours with them. Um, but they, they really basically said that they disagreed with our take on the evidence, unfortunately. Mm. So, so that's what we are left with. And, um, you know, now that's all finished. The new food guide is out and they still put out a guide that disagreed with, with our take on the evidence. Although there were a lot more positive things about this version of the food guide. Similar to what Brazil, right? Yeah. Um, focus on um, whole food. Great. Reduce your sugar intake. Excellent. Drink water instead of other beverages like sugary drinks. That's fantastic. So even if Canadians only do all that, you know, they're going to be a lot better off and a lot healthier than what we have, I think, for the last food guide. Yeah. Um, but it's there are some other, you know, issues that we have with the food guide that we, you know, that would take a long has time to go into. fat in it, right? Like, um, well, it, it's, it, it's, you know, Health Canada says, well, you know, we agree. They say in their, in their evidence base that 
there's no further evidence to suggest decreasing overall fat in the diet, which we agree with, but they still think there's convincing evidence to reduce the amount of saturated fat in the diet, which we disagree with particularly, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're eating whole food sources of, uh, you know, whole food, right? Um, and then there is a distinct shift towards a plant-based diet. And so um, they they have gone a step further than just encouraging a wide variety of whole foods, plants and animals and alike, but they've distinctly cautioned people away from uh, eating more animal, like eating animal sources of protein. And they say, eat more plant-based sources. So that, that's an interesting shift that um, we're seeing globally right now with a lot of these uh, um, groups that are recommending plant-based global plant-based diets. Um, for what they claim as health and to save the environment. Um, and Health Canada has made a very similar distinct move, even though when you ask them, they have said to us, no, we're not recommending a plant-based diet. We're just saying, you know, choose plants more often, right? But that when you choose plants more often, you're choosing animals less often. And we don't believe the evidence is there to tell Canadians to eat one dietary pattern that is proven to be healthful over another equally scientifically equal equally healthy dietary pattern, you know, such as a whole food with plants versus a whole food diet with animal uh, meat, eggs, and dairy. You know, there's no evidence right now. They've not been compared to one another. There's no evidence at all in the literature to support one over the other. So Canadians really need to have the choice of all equivalent dietary options. So, um, so anyway, that's where we are with that. And right now that's all finished and we're not, you know, there's no more real advocacy work to be, to be done with that, I suppose. But I don't know. Did you want to add anything, Carol? Um, I'll just say that um, where we really differed in our meeting uh, in Ottawa last May was the way science around nutrition should be done and the the bar um, where it should be set in order to come across with a population-wide guideline. And so Health Canada, just like all the other... um, bodies who are in charge of looking at nutrition and making guidelines uh, did not conduct what um, physicians and other scientists would consider a complete review of the nutritional literature. Hmm. Um, They claimed that they were transparent, but we don't know who sat on the guideline committee. So we don't know, if you don't know who's on the guideline, you don't know what sort of biases might be unintentionally introduced into the kinds of questions. So if you're not doing a um, review that would be uh, considered or understood as a full review, then obviously the partial review has to include some things and exclude other things. And Mm -hmm. if you don't know who made the questions, then you don't know who was at the table. Um, They you know, stress the fact that they eliminated industry and that's probably a good thing. Um, But in the, um, in the spirit of full transparency that I, we think that should have been either uh, disclosed at the time or at least disclosed after the point so we can evaluate um, their scientific review. Because when you look at, um, uh, the questions and the amount of work that went into it, while I think is probably good for how they were funded and how much time they had, is not um, 
the highest standard of science. If you don't start with good science, you can't make good policy and good science would make good policy. And so that's really um, the message we left them with. Um, it was interesting because they said to us, well, don't you agree about our stance on sugar that we're going to tell Canadians to greatly reduce the amount of sugar that they take? And we said, well, yes, we do. That's a great, that's a great statement to tell them. And they said, well, it's the same um, sort of mechanism that we came up with our, our messaging around salt and saturated fat. And like, well, we're not going to, tell you to redo the sugar if you came up with what we think is the right answer but <laughs> it just uh, happened to be right <laughs> yeah so, you know a broken clock is right twice a day as well you know but you know i think i it, if they follow that portion of the advice for sure right but i think it just happened to be right because the epidemiological and prospective evidence on sugar is so much stronger and conclusive or or quote conclusive as conclusive as those types of studies can be with high risk ratios that it you, you know you, the the authors of these studies are saying well this is likely to be causal instead of just well this is an association right whereas the epidemiological studies with fat and saturated fat are so weakly correlated that they're not, you know, they can never be considered causal. So they looked at the same studies, but the, the evidence is so much stronger for sugar than it is for anything else. So I'm not surprised that they arrived at what we consider the right answer if they looked at those types of studies and didn't do their primary review, right? Yeah, and we know we're not the only group that went to Health Canada with concerns about um, how they did their science and what modern science shows. Um, they did after hearing us conduct an additional, their, so their first scientific review stopped at 2015, uh, and then they did a selected updated mini review that took them to 2018. So, um, but it, I don't think it changed any of their primary, um, messaging. So, um, uh, It'll be interesting. So the next people to do a review is the Americans again, um, mm. which is the other thing that Health Canada said to us that they know that their messaging is strong because it uh, very closely mirrors the Americans' messages. So that's what they the strong recommendations are <laughs> on instead of the strength of the studies that they looked at. So again, as physicians, we understand that that is not a that's not where strength comes from in in guidelines, um, yeah. but it gave them comfort. So the dietary guidelines for Americans is up in 2020 again. They have to do it every five years where Canada doesn't have a mandated time frame for review. That's why we went so long um, without it. And um, we know there are people around the world trying to work within their own countries to ask for what we think should be the bare, you know, the, the bar, which is a full scientific review. And ideally, it wouldn't be um, construct, you know, the committee wouldn't be constructed with people who have had skin in the game for their whole career. You know, an epidemiologist can come in if they've done epidemiology in other way in you know other domains, and I think that would be better—a fresh set of eyes to actually say, "Oh, you know, not strong evidence, not high enough risk fact, risk ratios, hazard ratios, 
can't say anything about this because that's a lot of what nutritional science you know, lives on. Mm-hmm. Interesting what the Americans come up with this time because a lot of the, like a lot of the different guidelines, like the uh, diabetes guidelines and the obesity guidelines, sorry, my voice is kind of going out on me here. Um, <laughs> you know, they are starting to include a lower carbohydrate approach as an appropriate option. Um, and so it'll be interesting, like about the, what the global guidelines come up with, if they shift somewhat a little bit in that direction or not. Right. So that reminds me that Health Canada said that their guidelines for the population is not meant for people who aren't healthy. Oh, that's so only a small percent of our population. Carol. Exactly. Okay. We've got that recent study that says 12% yeah. of you should follow the Canada's food guide. Right. I don't know if people are aware of that, but for anyone who's not aware of it, there was a recent study in the U.S. which measured indicators of metabolic health, such as waist circumference, blood pressure, uh, fasting glucose, whether you're on any medications, and some other uh, areas as well. And of the population that they sampled, only 12% of the population showed metabolic health, meaning not any of these markers. Uh, that means 88% of the people in the U.S., if this is uh, relatable to the entire population, is actually already metabolically sick. So if we compare that to a Canadian population, um, we are very similar from obesity statistics, although maybe a hair less than the U.S., just a little bit. So maybe if they have 88% of their population is already metabolically damaged, then maybe we're slightly less than that. We could say, um, I don't know, we could shoot it at, let's say, 75%. So still, only 25% of us are actually metabolically healthy. So those are the people that can probably get away with eating, you know, a higher, mm -hmm. even whole food carbohydrate diet or um, handle a little bit of Western food here and there, right? Um, and so should we make a guide that is only applicable for 25% of the population or less? And, and it's you know. interesting that they said that, though, because I, I haven't looked to see if it still exists with this new guideline, but they used to have a specific guideline for diabetics. I remember seeing it on well, my bridge that the, had like the guideline the for, <laughs> written on it. Yeah, the guideline for diabetics is follow Canada's food guide. Eat yeah. 45 to 65 or... I think it's 50, I have it written here somewhere, 55, 50 to 65% of your diet is carbohydrates, top your fat at 30% and keep your saturated fat below 10%. That is identical to the old Canada's food guide. So it's not different for, that's the Canadian diabetic guidelines, right? It's not different. Um, however, as was mentioned, as you mentioned, all, you know, um, the UK, Australia, and America has come out with uh, position statements now on low-carb eating for type 2 diabetes and sometimes type 1 as well. And they're coming out with supportive guidelines that say this is a safe and effective treatment. It's medical nutritional therapy. And uh, we would hope that um, Canada will follow suit with that in the near future. And we have been told by Diabetes Canada that they are looking at the evidence. So um, I would hope that sometime this year that we're going to see a guideline similar to uh, 
you know, or at least a position statement talking about low carb nutrition, similar to what we have in the other countries, because our clinicians here in Canada, they need a Canadian guideline to back up on, right? To back them mm-hmm. up when they're doing this kind of nutritional therapy with their patients and seeing disease reversal or disease remission. Uh, because um, there are some groups that feel that this is not an evidence-based practice when we know that there's vast evidence to support this and uh, it's superior to, it's been shown to, as being superior to all other nutritional um, or most other nutritional plants, right? So, yeah, so that's important, but that, that is the Canadian guideline, is the Canada's food guide. So they're, right, they're pretty much identical. Mm-hmm. And the version that was of the food guide that was released in January um, is pretty bare bones with um, it sort of was pretty packaging, nice picture, uh, less confusing than the previous one, but um, there will be additional versions uh, available for healthcare providers and for people who run commercial kitchens and places like schools and hospitals. And so we don't know what the final version of the Canada Food Guide looks like yet. Mm. Um, I doubt it will vary, very, very, very. <laughs> I don't <laughs> doubt it will be very different. Um, but um, I was gonna. One question I have is like when we're talking about Health Canada, um, who is it? And I don't mean tell us their names, but like, what what background are the people that are making these guidelines? Are they dietitians or just science based people? Uh, there's a variety. Um, so there, uh, there's a number of physicians that are now in health policy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, researchers, there was a, uh, boy, I can't remember them all now, but there were some lipid researchers, there was an epidemiologist, there was a naturopathic uh, physician who was the prior head of the nutrition committee. Um, what else? There, I can't remember who else, but they're, they're a varied background. Also a registered dietitian, and she designed the scientific review. Um, the physicians who moved into there didn't uh, necessarily have a nutrition or endo kind of background. Um, uh, that's what I remarked on. Barbara remembers the lipidologist. I had forgotten about that um, until she reminded me there. Um, and so, you know, a variety of people. Mm, okay. Um, So we're nearly out of time, but I was wondering, do we want to wrap this up by if, do you guys have any sort of practical tips for say somebody who's just starting out, like um, they're just kind of wanting to change their diet and address how it uh, affects their health. Do you have any tips on where they should start or that sort of stuff? Um, I can start. Sure. So, so the first thing um, they should do, and this is not taking into account what their current health status is, but the very first thing anyone should do is to focus on not eating processed food 
and mm -hmm. refined food. So when we say refined food or ultra processed food, we say, you know, like flowers are often very, very refined. Um, refined vegetable oils are, you know, industrial produced, industrially produced vegetable oils. Um, like canola. Should be avoided. Yeah, like canola. I mean, yeah, canola is technically one of the better of the bad oils, but I w we would still advocate eating oils and fats that are found in nature and natural. Um, and and just reducing added sugar. So if someone just starts with that, that's a really good place to start. And that kind of gets them back into eating the way their grandparents ate or where the way traditional populations ate. And we know that those populations were much freer of disease or if not completely free of disease versus a Western population. So that would be the first step. And there's lots of resources online to help people with that. Um, the Diet Doctor website is one of the best places that we send mm -hmm. patients and friends and family just because it's so comprehensive. And that's this is, um, yeah, this is a website that's funded by um, its members, uh, although you don't have to pay into a membership, but it's completely free of advertising. There's no association that they have with any food or, or pharmaceutical industry. They're completely unbiased and an excellent source of scientific information. Um, so that's a good place to start. And then, you know, after that, one has to look at their own carbohydrate tolerance. And what we mean by that is, is someone already pre-diabetic or diabetic, or do they have polycystic ovarian disease, for example, or do they have metabolic syndrome? Those individuals, especially if they're on medications, really need to be in touch with their physicians. Um, because if they're going to make significant changes to the amount of carbohydrates that they eat on a daily basis, they're going to have the need for close medical follow-up and changing of medications often very, very quickly. And if they don't, um, for example, replenish enough water and electrolytes, they can get into, um, you know, they can feel poorly. Um, so that all has to be taken into consideration. So there has to be support um, for for this if they have medical conditions and especially if they're on medications. But it's it's a completely individual, um, you know, a completely individual thing. How much? How many? whole food carbohydrates any one individual can can tolerate based on their personal tolerance level but first and foremost is reduce the added sugar so get rid of the easy things like sugary drinks you know don't drink your sugar and then try and not have processed you know refined ultra processed food um, like the fast foods and the boxed foods and all that stuff in the center of the grocery um, stores yeah uh, other things that are um things that your great grandmother would have been doing is close the kitchen at night. Uh, I think that we have not fully understood the impact of food in, um, with respect to uh, circadian timing. So time of day. Um, I think that shortened eating windows, meaning um, you can delay your first meal and end your last meal earlier leaving you with a longer time overnight of not having anything in your system is um, probably a really good first step. Um, but some people are very habituated to the 24 seven availability. I just came back from a cruise and we were waiting to get on an all you can eat cruise. Um, and there were vending machines available and people were feeding the vending machines their dollar bills. This is in the States. Wow. And um, having a 750 milliliter pop while waiting. 
So that's crazy. It is, um, it's not easy. So avoiding sugar means actually getting it all out of your house and having a plan for when you're going to be exposed to it. I think that you probably in other episodes are covering the dopamine hit you get from um, having something that is designed to make you want more of it. And um, those are the kind of things that somebody is um, up against. And, you know, the food manufacturers aren't going to tell you, um, but they have figured out the formula it takes to get you going back for more. You can, but you can't mm -hmm. just eat one is not just an advertising slogan. It's what they're counting on. Um, but the great thing about it is that it is totally um, reversible. So that's the other thing. Commit to commit to a period change for a set amount of time. And because of the real internal changes that have to happen in order to convert from Western diet to traditional whole food um, eating, low carb eating, your body actually has to go through an adaptation period. So don't call it off after the first five days because you've had a headache. That's what happened to me in 2011 when I said, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to eat these simple carbohydrates anymore. Uh, I felt terrible and I had this headache and then it lifted. And I didn't have like the full energy. I had to still get through this adaptation phase. So my recommendation, again, is to commit to a 21-day or a 30-day strict trial of this. That will help you mm -hmm. to say, no, I'm, I don't eat that right now. So you can go to work and walk through the break room, you know, the nurse's lounge, wherever you're working, and say, that's not for me right now. Um, I'm going to wait to my next meal or I'm going to have whatever whole food you've brought for your snack, the hard boiled egg, whatever you need to, to do. Um, the other thing is that a food change is 100% reversible. So we've got people advocating out there to treat diabetes with gastric bypass surgery, and that's not reversible. Whereas this dietary intervention um, you know, if you run into trouble, you can back out of it if it's not working for you. Um, we're pretty confident that those people who are adequately supported um, with people who can help them troubleshoot, which is the other really magic of our physician group, I think, mm -hmm. um, the troubleshooting that we can help with um, needs to be available to people. So look for some sort of community would be my other recommendation. So I have three. I've got uh, shorten your eating window. Mm -hmm. uh, give yourself a strict set amount of time. 21 days, 30 days would be better. And find a community that can help you with troubleshooting. Um, and I echo the part um, if you're on medication for high blood pressure or diabetes that this definitely has to be done with supervision. And that's the other sort of prong of Barb and I's advocacy is the education aspect to our colleagues. So those um, 3,600 plus physicians who are in our group are at least low carb aware, whether or not they're low carb practicing or um, either they're themselves or within their own practice, but at least they've got somewhere to start to help people if, if they go to their family doctor and say, um, listen, I want to give this a try. And I was told to come in because 
I'm on this medication. So. Mm -hmm. I think that, and <clears throat> oh, I was just going to say the medication I, thing is huge because if you haven't done this, it's easy to underestimate the power of yeah. the nutritional change. And, and if you're on blood sugar medications that lower your blood sugar, it can, your blood sugars can drop quick enough to actually put you in danger if your medications aren't digested. Yeah. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And uh, just a couple of things Carol said reminded me of something. So um, to help to help psychologically, um, well, first of all, eating the Western diet and, and getting into trouble metabolically is not our fault, right? It's not the patient's fault. It's not society's fault. It's that food environment has become so pervasive that it's it's unusual to not fall prey to it and to not you know, have these repetitively delicious foods, right? It's, it's, they're delicious for a reason because mm -hmm. as she mentioned, food producers know the formula that keeps us coming back to, to, um, with the addictive qualities and, and keeps us, it, it's hard to stay away from it. Right. Um, that keeps us buying it for them and that keeps their profits up. So of course they're going to put the science into that to make it, um, to make that happen. So, but it's not like we've been telling people we've been a little bit misguided as a medical community, I think for 50 years and telling people um, to eat a certain way that has just perpetuated this epidemic that we have. So, you know, now we are starting to know better. Um, but we know it's, you know, we know it's not their fault because we ourselves fall, fell prey to it. Right. I used to eat scones and chocolate croissants and sugary yogurt. And I used to feed that all to my kids and bear paws and, box cereal because I didn't realize like most people are just not actually aware of what is in that food and and the sheer quantity of sugar that is added to those and that very highly digestible ultra processed carbohydrate like the flours and the wheats that just get turned right into sugar and boost your blood sugar even more so so it's not like people are are you know picking it up and saying well I think this is healthy for my kid and I don't care if I'm giving them all the sugar it's that they don't know that there's all that sugar in there so mm -hmm. you know part of it is just letting them know that Number one, it's not their fault that this has happened. Number two, um, educate them as to, you know, open their eyes as to what is actually in those foods. Um, and then two things that Carol says a lot in our group that help people and can help psycho psychologically when you're walking through that break room at work and there's all the donuts and all the crap is number one, that's not real food. And number two, I don't eat that. And so those, we, she says that all the time in her group and we are like, yeah, okay, thanks, Carol. I got it. I got it. It's great. <laughs> thanks for the reminder. I needed that check-in. Um, but those are things that can, can help as well um, in the mindset. So, yep. That's good. All right, guys, I'd like to really thank you for taking the time to both come on together. This has been really enjoyable. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that'll be interested in hearing um, your stories. Uh, any other just last remarks? No, thank you so much for having us on. We've really had a great time and, and this was super fun. Yeah, thanks for bringing this um, out to light. We like to talk about things that we do. We always get an influx of people who didn't know we were out there from <laughs> exposing yeah. the podcast uh, because we want to link up all those people. Um, and it, you know, it's always great also for me to meet people who have done their own reading and um, have come to this kind of a conclusion somewhat independently um, because, you know, I'm still looking, <laughs> I'm still making sure that the messages that I'm giving isn't harming, you know, like 
first do no harm mm -hmm. should mm -hmm. have been the principle that we applied um, to all of our uh, public health messaging and in nutrition science or nutrition messages, we really got things wrong. So we want to make sure we don't fall down um, or fool ourselves. Yeah. And the other thing we sh should mention on top of that is if, um, so people can go to our website, it's ccfortn, so cc4tn.ca, and we have, uh, we're kind of in the process of, for? what's Science that? For Canadian Clinicians for Therapeutic Nutrition. Perfect. Oh, right, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. cc4tn.ca, because um, we are the cctn, we formed a nonprofit group uh, to represent our groups in Canada, and um, and they can go to the website, there's information for individuals and health professionals on there, we do want to do some revamping of it soon, but um, uh, there is a physician directory or a clinician directory that the members of the public can go look, and if they're looking for a clinician specifically to help them in this, we are have an ever-growing uh, cadre of people who are agreeing to put their names up there. Um, and physicians and other clinicians can join us as well, and there's a join the CCTN button, and we welcome, uh, you know, we welcome any health provider in Canada to come and come on board with us and collaborate and help us with the science and, and uh, share their experience. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, guys. All thank right. you. I feel better Fantastic soon. afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. I really appreciated Carol and Barb agreeing to spend the time with me to do that interview. I hope you found it helpful too. Remember, if you are struggling with your own weight and finding it difficult to put all this stuff into place for yourself and just need that extra layer of support of somebody to support you along the way no matter what happens, I offer that through my Weight Loss Coaching for Physicians. You can go over to my website at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash work dash with dash me uh, or just hit the tab that says work with me and book a free introductory session. That free introductory session just gives you a chance to get online with me where we can chat, talk about what your individual issues are, and we can talk about what sort of ways I would be able to help you. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Have a fantastic week. We'll talk to you next week. And now for a quick disclaimer, this podcast contains general education information on weight loss for physicians. I'm not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing.